You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. Together on a Sunday morning, and I'm looking forward to uh, diving into God's Word together. So would you open your Bibles to the book of Psalms? I understand you're going through a series in the Psalms, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 27 this morning. Psalm 27, we'll look at the entirety of the Psalm. And before we read, I I just want to remind us of something you know, because you hear this every week. What we are about to do is encounter God's own authority and love in written form. This is God's word. John Calvin called the word of God his scepter, through which he rules his people and his world. We are about to encounter the king of creation, speaking personally to us. So with that anticipation in mind, let's begin reading Psalm 27, verse 1. Of David... The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For... He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Lord, please bless the preaching of your word. 
I love my dad, as I know many of you do as well, who know him as a pastor in this church for years. Um, I love him. I respect him. He is a godly man. He was a godly father. And I have many memories of his godly character. Uh, But there is one memory that has solidified, crystallized in my memory, my boyhood memory. As you know, many of those memories kind of fade. But this one uh, is still clear in in my mind. We were... Uh, driving as a family down the highway. Um, all of us were together. There was no hint of any uh, impending danger. In front of our car, there was a, an open truck, as I, I remember, and there was some kind of furniture and so forth in the bed of the truck. And standing upright were two mattresses, kind of obviously packed there as part of a move. And I remember noticing that the, the mattresses seem to be vibrating somewhat violently in the wind. And as if you've ever had a, a car accident, you know some of those things uh, kind of fixate in your mind right before something dramatic happens. And I remember watching them vibrate, and then abruptly one of them was picked up by the wind and began hurtling down the highway towards us. It was directly in our path. There was no way we could escape. And in that moment... Right before impact, my dad shouted. It was a one-word prayer. My dad doesn't shout, so that's probably why I remember it. Uh, He's more of a quiet man, but he shouted, one-word prayer, Jesus. And miraculously, the mattress bounced right in front of our car and then away. We were safe, untouched. No damage, no further danger. I've often wondered, what would I say in a moment like that? Because in a moment like that, what comes to your mind reveals where your hope is placed. What you think is your security or whether you have Security, or whether life is just fatalism and what's going to happen is going to happen and this is just luck whether it happens this way or not. Or maybe it would be anger or despair or hopelessness. What struck me about my dad in that moment was what came out of him was his place of trust. He only had time for one word. And that one word revealed his hope in the presence of helplessness and danger. I think this psalm, like so many of the psalms, are in a, is it a, it's in a lengthy way trying to get our heart to the place where that would be our one-word prayer as well. Where the Lord would be our hope when some danger, real or imagined, comes hurtling down towards us down the highway of life. As we are looking into our future and we see some very real danger come hurtling towards us, is our hope in that moment in the Lord? And I think David is seeking to model for us and motivate us that the Lord is worthy of countless one-word prayers when those dangers come towards us with impending wreckage and ruin. This psalm is broken into three unequal sections. The first two are his confidence in the Lord and then his need for the Lord. There's a kind of an abrupt transition, which we'll get to down there. If you notice, uh, in, in verse uh, 7, 
David transitions from these overwhelming expressions of confidence to a just as desperate and overwhelming expression of need. And so he walks through his confidence in the first six verses and then his need in the next five verses. And then he has this kind of final encouragement and exhortation in verses 13 and 14. So let's walk through these three sections, just keeping in mind that I think David's goal, and more importantly, God's goal, is to press our heart to consider those moments when danger is coming towards us, real or imagined, and to help us to fix our hearts on our Lord. He wants to help us do that. So let's receive his help this morning. The first section is our confidence or his confidence in the Lord. David begins with a series of metaphors designed to display how much confidence he has in his Lord. He says in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So in the midst of any darkness, David has a light. He is never ultimately confused or completely blind because the Lord is his light and his salvation, which is to say that in the midst of any need for rescue, he knows the name of his rescuer. It is the Lord, this covenant God that will keep him. And because of that, David asks a rhetorical question, whom shall I fear? And the answer to these questions in this psalm is no one. Since the Lord is my light and since the Lord is my salvation, there is no one that I need be afraid of. He keeps going. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. It pictures God as this castle or this refuge so that when David is inside that refuge, what need he be afraid of? You might think of some of those, those ancient castles with those huge walls that stand tall. And, and David is aware of some puny army on the outside that may seem impressive if they had him surrounded alone. But since he is inside the castle called God, he is not afraid of them at all. Their arrows can do nothing against that stone. They have no power to scale these walls. The Lord is his refuge. So he says, of whom shall I be afraid? You can almost imagine the resounding response from the congregation. No one. No one, David. Not if God is your refuge. He keeps going. More metaphors. He's just piling these on top of each other. He's trying to impress upon us. There is one worthy of my hope. Even when evildoers assail me. And notice this is graphic language here. To eat up my flesh. David, the shepherd, pictures himself almost as a sheep in the wilderness. And he sees enemies coming in in his mind. You know what they want to do? They want to devour me. They want to consume me for their own benefit. Many believers today and in ancient years felt that same way. Look, these, these enemies don't just want to wound me. They want to devour me. They want to consume me. They want to make me their meal. When this happens, when someone wants to consume me, to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, David has a surprising prediction. It is they who stumble and fall. These wolves apparently are unaware of the power of David's shepherd. So that their very attempts to consume him will actually result in their own destruction. If you've ever read the book of Acts in the New Testament, you can see this quite literally taking place. It strikes me, one one actually almost literal example of this is is King Herod in the New Testament in Acts when he's looking to persecute the church and literally to kill some of the leaders of God's people. 
the very next thing that happens after he is persecuting them is the, the scripture says he is eaten by worms and dies. And you're supposed to read that with a, a sense of divine irony. The one who's consuming God's people is literally consumed by worms and dies in agony. Now, I don't know what kind of worms they had back then, but apparently they were powerful ones. They ate them from the inside out. This is what David is saying. If you try to oppose God's people, you may be able to inflict some damage temporarily. You may be able to send someone, so to speak, prematurely to glory. But in the end, you are going to be the one that will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, David says. An army. And David literally had this happen. We have to kind of enter into the mind of this. We haven't ever had armies encamping against us, as far as I know. Um, typically, we, we don't have people with swords surrounding our house looking to come inside and lop our head off. But David literally had that happen. This is a a physical experience for David. He had had these moments where he was quite literally running away from an army of people trying to kill him. Try to imagine that kind of fear. An army? An army of people coming against you, trying to kill you? And David says, in that scenario, let me tell you where my heart is. In that scenario, my heart shall not fear. The war Rise up against me, David says, yet I will be confident. David exposes, I think, the real reason for our fear. The real reason for our fear is not our danger, but our forgetfulness. When I am afraid, it's because I have forgotten my God. Anytime I'm afraid, For any reason, for my children, for my future, for my finances, for my reputation. Anytime I have fear, the real reason is is not my danger. It's not the size or power or animosity of my enemies. I've never had someone trying to eat me. Okay? David says, even in that scenario, I'm not afraid. Why? Because I'm a brave, courageous person? No, because my God is the one watching over me. Even when an army encamps against me, I will not be afraid. How delightfully different from a a modern era that that seems to be uh, desperately concerned with even our online reputation. You might think of things like being concerned about how many likes that I have on that recent Facebook post. And, And you know as well as I do, your heart wants to see some likes, doesn't it? I mean, you're, you're, you're counting, really, when it comes right. And then when you start noticing some dislikes, you're counting that too. Dislikes? It was just a recipe. <laughs> How could you not like this picture of me? I, I don't even, what does that even mean? What does it mean about me? Perhaps, perhaps I'm not as awesome as I thought I was. Our heart is affected. I mean, I've had experiences where I spend the whole day in and out of wondering about myself. And that's just sort of reputational concerns. Why is that? Well, because I've been focused on those who might be against me. Who may be against me. 
let alone people who are against me. I could spend a whole night worrying about that. David says, even when I know people are against me, and not just digitally, in a deathly fashion, I will not fear. So fear, just put this little title on fear. Whenever you notice anxiety and fear, it's not because of your danger. It's because we have in that moment forgotten our God. Danger is not about creating fear. It's about revealing forgetfulness. David says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. This is a a remarkable thing for a man who is surrounded by enemies who want to eat him. One thing, ultimately, have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David wants to be near God. He wants to be close to God. He wants to examine God and meditate on God and declare himself to be one of God's people that count God precious in his life. He considers the best place for him to be is to be gazing at the glory of his God. But he has a reason. For, in verse 5, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Now, in David's days, in his early days, the tabernacle was not a fortress, it was a tent. This was not a physical refuge. But David would rather be in that tabernacle worshiping God. He considers that the absolute safest place to be. Because for him, God is like this shelter that covers over him in a storm. He's like a hurricane-rated covering roof that cannot be ripped off when the hurricane comes. He will hide me in his shelter, he says. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. Or to change the metaphor, he will lift me high upon a rock. Here we have this idea that a flood is coming and David has no high ground. And then the Lord plucks him up and places him on a place of safety. All these metaphors are meant to build to this celebration in verse 6. He's saying, in light of God being my light and my salvation and my refuge, the one I will seek in the face of every danger, my shepherd who protects me. Now, he says in verse 6, my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David anticipates this moment when God has revealed his absolute sovereignty, absolute protection, absolute power and love for his people, and David will celebrate him with sacrifices and with song. That's how David views his life even in the midst of the most atrocious dangers. I remember hearing about a a pastor several hundred years ago I don't have any way of verifying or know if this story is true, but it struck me as a helpful illustration. A pastor who was in the midst of conflict, apparently, with some people in his city, and it said, the rumor was, that people would come outside of his house and fire off guns just to disturb him because they didn't like his teaching or something. And I thought, well, that just puts everything in perspective. You know, that puts a bad day in perspective. You know, 2 a.m. in the morning... 
boom, you know, there, there goes off and the children are awake. And, and you know they're doing that so that I can't fall asleep. They're, they're doing that because they want me to be threatened into perhaps giving up some conviction. D- David is saying, you know what's going to happen? In the end, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to celebrate him. Now, here's, here's something remarkable to consider about this psalm. This degree of confidence David has in God in light of how God has revealed himself to Israel at the times. So let's just consider that. David was aware of the Exodus, for example, when people of Israel had been rescued out of slavery and brought across the Red Sea and ushered into the Promised Land. He was aware of things like the judges, Gideon conquering the Midianites with his 300 men, and, and Samson toppling the Tower of Dagon with his final breath. He was aware of some of those moments when God had been a a refuge of rescuing his people. And in light of those moments, he's able to say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He is my refuge. But David was not aware of how supremely the ultimate expression of God's glory and protection would be revealed in Jesus. So we read these verses from the New Testament. We can't help but see Jesus in all the descriptions that God is for his people. So that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. How many times in the last year, over the course of of this culture and this world, has someone consumed by the darkness of alcoholism and, and drugs come to know the Lord Jesus as a light in their darkness? How many times has a Christian been surrounded by enemies, digital or physical, and come to know that God is my refuge, I don't have to be afraid of them? How many times have you felt that your life seems vulnerable to sickness or disease or to those who seem determined to oppose you, and yet when you open your Bible and look here, you can see the face of Jesus declaring, I will never leave you or forsake you, and there is nothing that can separate you from my love. Not height or depth or angels or demons or anything in all creation. We have the face of Jesus shining out at us from all of these descriptions. Jesus declaring, I am your shepherd. I will watch over you. No one can snatch you out of my hands. And we can agree with David and say, we have every reason to have confidence in the Lord, to say in the face of danger, Jesus. And yet the psalm doesn't end there. And I am... So grateful that it does not. If you just read the first six verses of Psalm 27, you could have the impression that mature Christian life is all about expressing confidence in the Lord. And there is a type of teaching, which you may be aware of, in the church that, that indicates that that is what maturity looks like. You're supposed to be perpetually confident If you're not confident, it's uncertain whether God will be for you what he promises. If you don't have enough faith, it's uncertain whether God will be for you what he promises. I was listening to an interview recently of a woman who had been a part of a church that preached the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And she was saying, I believed, I was taught that we would allow no negativity in our home. 
That if, if someone was sick, we were, we were not to believe in any negative act. We were to believe that God, there is almost no sickness. It's almost as though there is, there is nothing happening here. We're going to be positive and confident. And it is good to be confident. And yet it is also good to be needy. Christians are not meant to be warrior sheep impressed with themselves. You know, there's no like buffalo sheep out there. (laughs) There's no, you know, fanged lambs. You don't look at one and say, well, I mean, if I was a lion, I'd I'd think twice. (laughs) You don't have these kinds of sheep. Biblically speaking, you have sheep that trust God and those that do not. Sheep that look to the shepherd and those that do not. You have have foolishly self-confident sheep and those that rightly acknowledge the level of their need. Christian confidence is not Christian self-confidence. It's Christian God-confidence. Very important difference, isn't it? We're not hoping in our hoping... We're hoping in our God. We're not confident in our ability. We're confident in His ability. And that allows us to freely express the reality of our need and our vulnerability. It makes us not afraid of weakness, but afraid of pride. There is a big difference. We're not afraid of feeling vulnerable. We're supposed to feel vulnerable. We're sheep. A sheep that doesn't feel vulnerable is going to die. A sheep that doesn't feel vulnerable is a dumb sheep. Because you are. A Christian that doesn't feel vulnerable is a dumb Christian because you are. Listen, Christian, you are not stronger than Satan or this world, not in yourself. You are not more powerful. You do not have the ability to overcome those who want to eat up your flesh. No, you don't. You don't have greater community influencing ability than the prince of darkness. You have God. You are meant to feel vulnerable, confident in him, and yet willingly needy. And that's why David transitions in verse 7 to expressing his need. God is this way. Here's where I am, God. So he begins to express his need. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. And then David reminds the Lord that he is doing what God has called his sheep to do. He is doing it. You have said, seek my face. And he's saying, Lord, I am doing this. My heart, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Apparently, David has some inner turmoil, a a question of, might God... Turn away from me. He's aware his only refuge is God. He has no other castle to run to. But as he goes to the door of that castle, he is aware of his own unworthiness and that God has every right to turn him away. God is not obligated to open his door to this imperfect servant. And so he pictures himself going to the door of the castle and knocking, and there is no answer. The door remains closed, and the wolves come to devour. Hide not your face from me. 
Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. So David has experienced help in the past, but this is a new moment where he is aware of his need for God to be gracious to him, and he's aware that if God does help him, it will be all of grace. Sometimes when we get saved, we become a Christian, we're aware of how unworthy we are of God's grace, and then having become a Christian and, you know, accelerated all of four inches in maturity, we suddenly think, well, God owes me because of how righteous I am now. Listen, we are always living in complete dependence on the grace of God. God's grace is not this thing outside of himself which obligates him to help us. It is this determination inside of himself to be gracious as he has promised to be. So that the Christian who is always imperfect should always be aware, if God is not gracious to me, I have nowhere to turn. Hide not your face from me. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. He's just laying claim to the level of his need for God's gospel graciousness. Be gracious to me, Lord. I have wolves coming and I I don't have any right to claim your help. So please, please open the door. Please turn your face. Please keep your eyes on me. I'm I'm your sheep. I don't have any way of defending myself. Would, Would you please watch over and protect me? And then it reveals why David might be having this doubt in his heart. He says in verse 10, a very profound verse, For my father and my mother have forsaken me. Now we don't know whether this is a literal moment or was it more figurative that there were a number of times in David's life where God's people, who he might count as his father and mother, turned away from him, forsook him. But the point here is David has experienced those closest to him, those who should never forsake him, have turned him out. Those who should never say no to him and have the door closed, the door is closed. And so he's coming to his God. He's saying, I've I've lost even the help of those closest to me. Those nearest to me have turned away from me. This verse is incredibly encouraging. If you're here and, and you maybe aren't a, a believer in Jesus Christ, you just want to visit a church this morning, and we love that you're here. We're glad that you're here. You're always welcome. But maybe you've experienced something like this, where someone close to you has turned away from you, and it was just crushingly disappointing. And you felt lost and alone. That's what David feels. That's why the Bible is relevant for all kinds of moments in life. Here's a verse for someone who feels forsaken, even by their own father. Their own mother has turned them out. They have nowhere else to go. Their closest family no longer desires to care for them. And here's the offer of the Christian gospel. The offer of the Bible is, there is one who will be there for you even when your closest turns you out. Even the closest may let you down. They may. The Bible is not optimistic about the human condition. Even the closest may betray you. 
Your closest friend may slander you. Your closest family member may decide to disown you. It is a possibility in this broken world. But there is one who in that moment you can turn to. Who is gracious to the orphan and the widow and the outcast. The one who has been abandoned and lost and is hopeless and alone. There is one who has called himself the father to the fatherless. The husband of widows. The lover of outcasts. There is one like that and his name is God. And So David turns to that God and he says, the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. David pictures enemies all around him. He doesn't know which way to go. He doesn't know what to do. And he considers his safest path to be asking the Lord, Show me which way to go, Lord. I think David would would have uh, no tolerance for a kind of Christianity that separates the following of God from the need for God. In, in David's mind, these, these come together because you're coming to God. And in coming to God, you're asking him to direct your life. God is not the Santa Claus that provides for your desires and gives no direction. No, he is God. And so David says, I equally need your protection and your direction. Your direction gives me safety. Your protection gives me safety. I don't just need you to protect me. I need you to direct me. Because turning away from your path is just as dangerous as having enemies attack me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path. Give me a nod up to the will of my adversaries. And then we we see something of appearing into what, what perhaps is happening right now in David's life more practically. Four false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. Well, here's the wolves. What have they done? They've discredited David in order to expose him and attack him. They have lied about him In order to consume him. And David feels vulnerable like a sheep. His reputation, apparently David's danger, is not just physical. Have you ever had someone lie about you? Maybe they take a kernel of truth related to your weaknesses. And then they exaggerate it. And proliferate it. And repeat it. And suddenly people that once loved you now are suspicious of you. People that once cared about you now wonder if they've missed something. And they begin hedging their friendship with with caveats and distance. Have you ever had that experience? Oh, it's a terrible experience. Happens inside, outside the church. It happens anytime there's human beings that live together. Uh, this, is, this is something that every kind of person faces at one point. False witnesses, they, they, they lie about me and they want to consume me. Whisperings at the office place. Suddenly you're seeing sideways glances, and huddled meetings that you're not a part of. That eye roll and knowing glance between other family members at Thanksgiving dinner. Conversation between two neighbors who don't wave when you drive by. Have you ever had those moments wondering, there's whisperings happening? That's what David was experiencing. 
They want to take me down. They're willing to lie to do it. I don't have any way of defending myself. David is asking God to be aware of this. The Christian life is neither all confidence nor all need. Maturity means bringing both to the Lord and declaring, I am confident in you and I desperately need you. When you read the Psalms, one of the ways that I think we can best understand their meaning for us today is to remember Jesus Christ was God-man. He was God-man. And the Psalms make a lot more sense when you read them that way. So the first half of this Psalm, I emphasized how Christ reveals how God is for David. He's the shepherd. He's the light. He's the salvation. He's the refuge. The second half of this Psalm, I think, emphasizes Christ as man who chose to walk this same difficult path in our place. So that we know what the writer of Hebrews says, that we don't have a a high priest, a leader, who is unaware of these kinds of moments in our life. But he's able to help us when we face this kind of moment. Just see if you can read verses 7 and following, thinking about Jesus the man who walked through the valley of the shadow of death in our place. Was there ever someone who more faithfully sought the Lord than Jesus Christ? Never. And yet, Jesus Christ had to be forsaken. He didn't just wonder whether the Lord would close the door on him. He actually experienced the turning away of God because he was walking in the footsteps of an unfaithful servant. If we read this in terms of Jesus, David's son, we can see Jesus coming to his father there in the garden and saying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Very similar to David. Do not turn away from me, for false witnesses have risen against me. And they breathe out violence. And what does God say? No. You will face that violence. You will face those false accusations. And so what does Jesus do? He stands alone, surrounded by Herod and Pilate and the Romans as they mock and abuse and false witnesses rise against him. And he stands there without the security of Psalm 27 guaranteeing that God will overturn those enemies and bring him out of that trial. At least unto death. Now, why is that good news? Because if even Jesus Christ in our place faced this kind of accusation and danger and vulnerability and weakness and opposition, then certainly his people in every age will face the same thing. But because Jesus faced it, because Jesus faced the forsakenness of God in our place, we have confidence that we will never be forsaken by the forsaken one. Jesus never rolls his eyes at your moments of need because he experienced them more fully than you ever will. And so he stands with you as your brother and your Lord in your moment of need. He stands with you as the one who received the forsakenness of God 
so that he could always take you in. So that when we go to that door, at that refuge, and we knock because our child is sick, because our neighbor is gossiping, because our dear friend has betrayed us, Jesus opens the door. And there he is. The one who suffered in our place. Who was devoured in our place. Who paid for our sins. And smiling, he takes us in. And closes the door. What good news the gospel brings. A savior who suffered and then invites us to himself to know him and to receive his love and protection. What good news. David ends this testimony with an expression of hope and exhortation. I believe, he says, that I shall look upon the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look upon his goodness in the land of the living. And then he exhorts his fellow pilgrims, his fellow sheep, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. You notice this psalm, unlike some psalms, does not end with a celebration of God's answer. We leave David surrounded, falsely accused, and hoping. I believe there is great comfort because many times when we come to God's word, we leave that word still facing the exact same scenario. The cancer has not yet gone away. The surgery is still scheduled. The witnesses keep speaking. David has a word for us. There will be a day when I will look on my Lord in the land of the living. And if I have to wait till that day, I will. So, fellow sheep, fellow pilgrim, David would say, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. If you are in the middle of a moment where danger, real or imagined, is hurtling down the highway towards you, Wait for the Lord. Let your heart take courage. He is your light and your salvation. He knows your need. He knows your danger. He faced worse in your place to guarantee that you will look on the Lord in the land of the living. There will be a day where all wolves are vanquished, where all dangers are removed where all needs are eliminated and there will simply be 
open door and the glory of his face. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.